Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. Lisa Rainsberger has the dubious honor of being the runner who came closest to going to the Olympics without actually making the team. In a competitive athletic career that lasted over 20 years, Lisa qualified for and competed at five different Olympic trials events, once in swimming and four times in the marathon. She finished in fourth place in 1984, 1988, and 1992. Lisa is the last American woman to win the Boston Marathon and was also a two-time winner of the Chicago Marathon. Some of the insights Lisa revealed to me were the importance of sticking to the pace that you have trained for regardless of how fast others in the race are running, or slowly, her use of a nine-day training cycle to spread out hard workouts and add more recovery, the importance of strength training and cross-training in addition to running volume to improve performance, and finally Lisa's coaching and her conservative, goal-oriented approach to improvement. We'd like to thank Lisa for her time and wish her the best of luck in the future. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash running interviews slash Lisa Rainsberger. Thanks for listening. So Lisa, thanks for being on the show today. Can you tell us a bit about your background to start off? Well, um, grew up in Michigan. My uh, dad immigrated to the United States when I'm first generation from Denmark. And, uh, we all grew up as U.S. citizens, and, and, you know, one of the things that was just a common theme growing up was just the pride and honor of representing the United States. So when I got involved in sports, I was a swimmer. I, you know, from a very early age, the one thing I wanted to do was to make the Olympic team and wear a U.S. uniform. And so, you know, I, I tried. <laughs> tried really hard to make that happen, and... 1980, I qualified for the Olympic trials as a swimmer, but the U.S. boycotted that year, and so I decided to switch sports and um, started running at the University of Michigan, and then went on to be uh, kind of a three-sport All-American at Michigan, and uh, ran the first ever women's Olympic trials back in 1984 in Olympia, Washington and um, ran the marathon there and finished fourth. And as you know, three makes the team. And so I was fourth. And, uh, you know, from there I just, you know, devoted myself to be a professional runner and went on to win maybe, you know, major marathons. Again, got fourth in the Olympic trials in 1988 and 1992. You know, just that 20-year span of... Uh, pursuing that Olympic dream. Yeah, that's that's unfortunately probably what you're most known for is uh is all those is all those very, very near misses with the Olympic team. So how did you yeah. how did you end up becoming a runner after being an Olympic trials qualifier swimmer out of high school? Well, okay, so during the summer of nineteen eighty, I thought what on earth am I gonna do? Just sit at home and swim and and watch everyone else go to the Olympic Games. And because where I lived, you could catch the BBC station and watch the Olympics, you know, watching Canada compete and whatnot. And so the Olympics were still on TV, and I didn't want to be privy to that. So I took an eight-credit biology course that Michigan offers, and it was in 
Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in the middle of godforsaken nowhere. No swimming pools, no water, nothing. And so after about a week or so, I started to feel, you know, just uneasy. So I would get up before classes in the morning and go for a run. And um, came back pretty fit, you know, just because I ran every morning, you know, anywhere from five to ten miles. And came back to start my sophomore year at Michigan. And I just couldn't bring myself to get back in the pool. And my roommate at the time was on the cross-country team. And and so she convinced me that I would be, you know, a good addition to the team. So I went and talked to coach. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, I gave up a full scholarship in swimming and walked down and got a Pell Grant student loan work-study job and walked on the cross-country team. That's uh, that sounds like some. That sounds like it was, might have been hard to give up with a full scholarship and all. Well, you kidding? My dad he swung a hammer. He was a laborer. I mean, we had nothing growing up, and and so my mom tells the story that you know he he literally cried. You know, he's a big he was a big man. He was six foot five. You know, very stoic and man of little words. And you know, he he took it especially hard. Because he didn't understand, you know, the whole cross-country running thing. He said to me, he goes, you know, the gun goes off. You disappear into the woods. 20 minutes later, you come back. <laughs> He's like, okay, I like, okay, Dad, just wait till track season. You know, the track starts, you'll get to see the race, you'll understand it. And uh, he, you know, he was my biggest supporter. He was, he was at all the Olympic trials. He was at Boston when I went Boston. You know, he was he was very proud. So tell us about about Boston. You are still, unfortunately, the last American woman to win Boston. Uh, the men finally got another one this year, but uh, it was kind of a banner oh, year okay. at the race. So tell us about that experience of winning of winning the Boston Marathon. You know, first let me just say that Shalane should have won. She is by far the most talented and consistent and experienced runner. But the way she ran it, if, if you could go back and analyze the way she ran it and then do a do-over, I think the outcome would have been different. So I, I just want to put that out there because I, I think she's amazing and I respect her. And, and hopefully, you know, she'll review the videotapes and go back and learn and understand the conservation of energy. It, throughout the whole 2016, because you have to understand, what was that her second marathon? Uh, I believe no. it was her fourth or fifth. Oh, that's true. Okay. Um, fourth or fifth, but still not her 15th. <laughs> she, had, she ran the Olympic trials, the Olympics, New York, Boston. So maybe her fourth. Yeah, but that sounds right. Not, yeah, so she had, she had done three prior to Boston. So, anyway, I think um, hopefully she gets to do over. And uh, and then there's Debbie, the Linden. She's, you know, right there as well. So, I, you know, I think the Americans are going to be, you know, making a presence in the future years. But, you know, winning it is, is like none other. I mean, it, it is the grand kubah. 
the Super Bowl, you know, the you know whatever it is. Um, it's the pinnacle of the sport. And even more so, I think, than the Olympics. And winning it was um, very much life changing. Was there anything in particular about the course that suited you or your abilities? Uh, none of the above. <laughs> really? I'm 5'10". Oh, yeah. I'm 5'10". I was 130 pounds. I'm a big runner. And that day, you know, the temperatures were in the 70s. It was hot. And, you know, it was the year that it was a tipping point for the marathon. It was the year that it could have either folded and just become a a good local race, or it could be continue to be one of the world ranked marathons. And so there was, there wasn't a lot of competition. And the women who, you know, world leaders, you know, didn't run Boston that year. There wasn't any prize money. And you know, my shoe sponsor at the time offered me a bonus, a sizable bonus, to run it, hopefully win. So that was my incentive to run Boston at the time. And then the year after I won, Hancock signed the multi-million dollar contract to be the official sponsor. And so, that look what happened now. As you said, it's one of the pre premier road races in the world. Oh, yeah, it is. You know, there's nothing what happens, really, with prestige and history. And, you know, the you, you walk down any in America, and prior to the bombing, even say you know the Boston Marathon, and people know what you're talking about. But if you walk down and say you know London or Rotterdam or Chicago, they're like, oh, okay, but they don't associate with the history that is covered in the Boston. So, what do you think it'll take for Shalane or Desi or somebody else to finally win? waited 30 years, I think, Desi, what was it, 2009? I think it was 11. That, what, 11 that she, you know, that that was amazing performance by her, and I think if she gets back to her fitness of that era, she can do it. She's very smart. Um, Shalane was... I, you know, I, I cannot say anything negative. I just say, I, I, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way because it's just my opinion, but I think she used up too much energy trying to preserve the lead. And, you know, even through water stations, she would accelerate through the lead. And, you know, when you're covering 26 miles, it's, it's about conservation of energy. And she ran out of energy. And had she, you know, just sat in the back of that lead group of nine or seven girls and just got sucked along, she probably could have um, had a different outcome. And and so I don't think she needs to do anything different with her training, with her lead-up racing, with her program. It's just a matter of understanding the nuances of the marathon and nutrition and hydration and, you know, all the variables that go into hot days, cold days, windy days, you know, and, you know, just becoming a student of the marathon. And, and I think that will put her, you know, the laurel ring on her head. I think she's very cute. 
So is that kind of how you would approach racing a marathon in general? Absolutely. It's not the fastest person who wins, it's the smartest. And you look at, you know, the history of marathons and, you know, performances that were shocking and, and um, strategic and the ones that, you know, when everything falls into place, you know, like math. Okay. At the beginning of mar- the, the marathon and all the press conferences, nobody uh, thought that Ned would be the winner. But he was the smartest runner in that race because he had trained for a perfect pace. His body has a perfect pace that he can sustain over 26 miles, and that's what he's trained for. So when the, when the pace went out slow, he didn't train for slow. And so it's awkward, uncomfortable. It uses more energy to try to, to, to find that perfect pace. So he just set up about his business, and this is what I'm trained for, this is what I'm going to run, and look what happens. No one would have predicted that. And so there is a perfect pace that people train for. Show me in the 1984 Olympics, she had trained to run that fast. So when the, when the field of women runners seemed, you know, unreasonably slow, Joni said, okay, three miles, I'm out of here. I have to run what's right for me. And everyone at the time thought she was crazy. And look what happened. And so once an athlete, and this is how I coach the runners that I work with, you, you train for that perfect pace. And Shalane had trained for a pace that was close to what she ran, but it's the energy that she used surging throughout the race, walking the wind for everyone else, when she could have just sat back in the back of that group. It's like cycling. You know, when you, when you are drafting off the back end of a bike, you, you, you can save almost up to 30% energy. And so, you know, the drafting and running isn't quite so much, but it's, it's definitely evident. So had she drafted a little more, had she not surged so much, I think she would have won. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. A lot of, uh, a lot of programs would say to not, would, would probably tell you to not, in fact, go to the lead if, if the pace was going slow because that's what you're going to, you're going to end up breaking the wind for everybody else and waste energy. But I, personally, I, I kind of agree with you that if you train for X pace, then that's what your body's ready to run and what you should run. Yeah, and that's what happened with that. However, Shalane's pace was ungodly fast. Maybe. <laughs> it was fast. Through through the half marathon, through twenty miles, they were they were on, you know, two fifteen pace. So they were the first ten miles of Boston for the women this year were very fast. And when you combine that speed and that effort with leading everyone through, you know, it, it, it took a toll. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to move on for a bit. Um, after your elite marathon career, you uh, did you qualify for an Olympic trials in the triathlon? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I did. It and was so, fun. You, so, know, it was, you know, in, 19, or in 2000, it became an Olympic medal sport. And, you know, I figured, hey, why not? I can swim. I know how to run. You know, I figured this bike thing out. And, um, I was, my first year as a pro, I got fourth at U.S. Nationals, imagine that, <laughs> which was my, my theme, and uh, so I was devoted to spending that winter 
just working on my bike handling skills and, you know, just becoming, you know, stronger on the bike. And I crashed and um, I couldn't really do much for a while. During that time, I found that my husband and I were expecting our daughter, Katie. And so um, she kind of gave me a reason to happily retire permanently from athletics. So these days, with triathlon being a much more popular sport than it was, say, in 2000, uh, somebody like you, who was a really good age group swimmer and then a really good runner later on, probably would have been encouraged toward triathlon at a much earlier age. Um, did you ever feel like trying that kind of thing before you did? Well, you know, like you said, it, it really wasn't that popular. You know, it wasn't until the year 2000 that it became even an Olympic medal sport. Before that, it was just a club. It, was, it, was, it wasn't, you know, established as a, you know, a professional sport. It was kind of, people thought of it as, you know, like the X Games, like we think of now, you know, it's just for crazy people. And, and it wasn't until the IOC identified the, the ITU, the International Triathlon Union, that it really started to take off as a, you know, highly respected sport. And, yeah, had it, had it been that way earlier, I probably would have, you know, back in 1996 or even after the 92 Olympics, I would have ventured into that arena. And if you had, what do you, speculation aside, what do you think you could have done? Do you think you could have maybe <laughs> broken the fourth barrier or something? Oh, I, you know, it's hard to say. There's a lot of talented, you know, women in the sport. I would like to think I could have made it. You know, I always, that's what kept me going, is that firm belief and, you know, hope down the road that, you know, that's time I can do it. You know, and, and so from 1980 to the year 2000, that's what was my driving force was that that belief that, yeah, why not? You know, there are no limitations. It, you know, and so I would just work hard and, and uh, try to make good choices. And I loved what I did. Yeah, I think it would have been interesting. I think the uh, the sport has certainly come a long way from the uh, from the 80s and, uh, and, the, and the early 90s. I think it would have been interesting yeah. for some athletes who... Uh, maybe didn't have that option, what, what they, uh, how, how things might have progressed or changed in other sports even. So um, tell us a bit about, uh, about your training when you, were, when you were at the elite level. Well, you know, I, it was fortunately before the age of the Internet and, you know, all of the, the social media that is accessible. It was the age before garments. Uh, immediate feedback. And so, you know, my training was more intrinsic. It was more based on feel and understanding, you know, what I needed in terms of recovery and, and what I needed in terms of speed. And it wasn't, you know, driven by external data, which I think is a problem for some athletes these days. There's too much knowledge of you know, what so-and-so is doing or too much knowledge of feedback. And people are, you know, some athletes are losing that feel. And, and so I, I trained by feel. I, I trained on a nine-day cycle instead of the same seven-day cycle. So meaning my long runs wouldn't always be on Sunday. They would be every ninth day. And so in that nine-day period, I was able to get more quality done because I threw in that extra 
recovery day. And, and, and so it, when I started, when I went from a seven-day to a nine-day training cycle, um, that's when everything just started to improve. And, you know, it's really exciting that my coach and I were able to do what was right for me versus reading about what someone else was doing. And who was your coach? Um, his name is Fred Moore, and he's based out of Phoenix. He just had his 80th birthday, and he's still coaching. <laughs> and uh, he's just my life mentor. And so t- um, tell us a bit about, about Fred Moore. Uh, I've heard his name before, but uh, not, but not in, usually in much detail. You know, Fred is, he keeps a very low profile, and he has coached, you know, other Olympians, Lynn Nelson out of Phoenix, when she made the Olympic team in the 10,000, Trina Painter, he coached myself, you know, he just, you know, he would, he would get one or two elite athletes, and then, you know, he coaches what's like a club team, and he, um, he he was the race director of this event called Continental Home. And this was back in the late 80s. And Continental Home was a company owned by Charles Keating of the Savings and Loan debacle. So Keating is who the government blamed for the Savings and Loan implosion. And if you should Google Charles Keating, he just passed away. And, and so it was a huge scandal. And, you know, every year they would bring in Mary Slaney and pay her $200,000, and they would bring in Frank Shorter, and they brought in, you know, Solo Bud, and they brought in all these, you know, at the time famous runners to come and run this 10K called Continental Home. And Fred was the race director, and it was funded by Charles Keating. And then, so the race obviously uh, went under folded when the savings and loan banking industry went under. So, um, interesting history. And Fred would tell stories about, you know, the whole money transaction and how, you know, how athletes negotiated and how athletes were paid. And, you know, it's fascinating. And I, I, I would hopefully he would write a book about it. But nonetheless, he was that race director. And I went down one year and I was invited to run. And he, we just struck up a conversation and just there was this synergy. And from that point on, he was like, oh, and was there any particular historical coaching great that he subscribed to, or was he pretty much doing his own, doing his kind of doing his own thing? You know, he's a Jack Daniels fan, okay. and uh, he and also Arthur Whittier. He liked some of the concepts for marathoning, but you know, he he wasn't sure that the Whittier implementation for me would work because I am five ten, I'm not ninety pounds. And so for me to try to run 120 pounds or 120 miles a week, you know, I, I couldn't sustain that and stay healthy. And so it was more of an implement, implementation of both styles of Lydia and Jack Daniels. So you were a relatively lower mileage runner for a marathoner? Yeah, 85 was usually my average, which in today's world is unheard of. Well, certainly for the marathon it's unheard of. Yeah, I mean, it's great for 10K. <laughs> right. But um, but I couldn't, I would supplement with swimming. I would still get in the water, you know, during the week and, and, and train in the pool. And I lifted weights. But, you know, I 
my body could take the the more the higher mileage. I, you know, I, you know, I was probably you know just not the right kind of physique for you know the, the really fast marathoning. Well, and that was that actually leads into my next question. Um, so, like a lot of other runners in your era, uh, you raced successfully over you know quite a range of distances, uh, not just the marathon, even down to five k. And, and a lot of times, um, how did you adjust training for different race distances? You know, it pretty much stayed the same in terms of the quality of my track. When I would start to gear up for for a marathon, let's say you know a spring marathon, about sixteen weeks out, I would start to take my my normal 90-minute long run and, and start to make that the main focus of the week. And so my long run became longer and with purpose. And then, you know, trying to trying to maintain the quality during the week as well while my long run started to uh, get longer and more intense. But, you know, I'm, if I didn't do speed work, I would just get really slow. And I felt that, you know, and Fred felt that just by going out and running long, slow distance really made me good at running long and slow. So we had to find that perfect mix. And so it came down to a hard day, recovery day, a moderate day, a hard day, recovery day, moderate day. And we did that three times in a cycle. And in that cycle, we would do a tempo we would do track, and we would do a long run, and the moderate days were what we call steady state, which um, you know. So it, you know, it was a it was a system that worked for me, it, and it allowed me to still be able to run a fifteen something five k, and then you know sixteen weeks later run you know twenty something marathon. That sounds very similar to this to the schedule that the Hansen's group and Desiree Linden uses uh, today, which is interesting. Um, that's and uh, what you were saying about the track is something that uh, was also echoed by one of your contemporaries, Kim Jones, who I interviewed a few weeks a few weeks back. That uh, yeah, having had to maintain some kind of of hard, well, hard track work, quote unquote hard, uh, just to probably break the probably break up the monotony of of long long runs your elite career in total lasted as you said about 20 years and uh that's a really long career for anything having to do with athletics how do you explain <laughs> that longevity balance you know i think you know there's there's a time to be to learn moderation and you know there's there's that time where you have to listen to your body and, and again, I think I grew up in an era where I was able to weed out all the external stuff and just be intuitive. And, and one of the biggest struggles I have with coaching right now is the darn garment. Because everybody wants to quantify their daily runs. And, you know, sometimes you don't need to. You don't need... And, you know, they, they come back and they're like, man, I'm going so slow. And, like... What is slow? If it's a recovery day, isn't it all relative? I mean, slow is, is slow, but you don't need to know. And so I'm like, turn off the garment. Don't allow yourself mentally to know. If you're following within this, the, the right training um, system, it all balances out. 
it's just that people will go, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm running late, so I need to pick it up, until they force it. And so there's so much forced training going on that, that you know, that athletes get injured, they, they don't reach their potential because there's not that flow of hard day, moderate day, recovery day. And it seems like some of the opposite is true, too, where if they're out running and they're running f- faster than they're, in theory, than they're, quote, unquote, supposed to, then they'll slow down and, and not just go with it because that's not the pace they're supposed to be on. Right. And so my coach at the time, Fred, when he could, <laughs> would ride along on a bicycle. And we had this one loop in the Biltmore in the Phoenix area that I would do as my benchmark. So when, when I went and performed and did certain time benchmarks, we knew I was ready. And so he would record all my stuff and really would in the middle of the workout, wouldn't tell me. But he would, he would allow me to race and run based on how I was feeling that day. And he was encouraging. And so he would just say, this, is, this workout's going really well. You know, and that gave me enough motivation to keep, keep it going really well. So if I, if I felt I was impressing him, you know, then I would be like, okay, I can, I can do this. And so it was a very positive form of feedback versus, you know, the restricted feedback of a number of a, you know, let's say I'm supposed to be hitting 450s and I, and I come through a 456, you know, all of a sudden something that was really, you know, positive can be a negative because it wasn't, you know, where I, my mentally I thought I should be. And so having too much feedback, and, and only a coach knows when to give it and when not to give it. So that's why, you know, the, the, the self-trained athlete, you know, the, you know, the Ryan Hall self-trained athlete, it's hard, you know, so hard to know what to say, when to back off, when to push forward. So having that coach who's able to read your body language, who's able to assess the situation and make changes, really is, a, is the most successful relationship with athlete coach. It seems to take a pretty, uh, a pretty unique individual who can actually effectively train themselves and, be, and yeah. is able to be objective with themselves about, about what they're doing. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I mean, I could barely get through a hard run if Fred wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I was smarter, I'd be like, "Oh, nobody's looking. I'm gonna go easy." <laughs> right. So, uh, you mentioned this a little bit before. Tell us about uh, about your own coaching. You have a, uh, I know you at least have a website and work with a work with presumably yeah. a group of people in Colorado Springs. I did. I, you know, I, I was. It's more. It's my training and coaching program has morphed. And now I'm working predominantly with youth. And, you know, when my own kids started to become involved in running and, you know, I was working with them, it was like this gravitational pull with many parents in our community who, you know, wanted to be a part of it. And so, you know, subsequently now I have a, I coach the Junior Olympic USATF program here and we have 80 kids in it. And, and so, you know, and I put on a, kid, a youth camp and I do summer and winter training programs for kids. So, because my own kids are there, it's just, it's great because I get to be in their lives and be a part of it and, and you know, help keep it safe and fun and age appropriate. And so, I, I'm mostly coaching youth kids right now. So, how do you go about constructing a program for a person, especially youth, because that's such a, uh, 
Because it can be such so touch and go. Well, it's, it's based on when they come to me. If they're they're young and just starting out as the sport, then it's very, very, very conservative. It's short. It's built on developing form and speed. And so distance is not even in the vernacular. We don't do distance runs. And so, you know, sometimes collectively the workout means they've covered three miles, but it's, it's designed to, you know, help hip strength. It's designed to help, um, you know, how their foot strikes the ground. We do a lot of agility. We do circuit training. We do upper body and core. And so for the youth, it's, it's just, um, it's much more um, all body comprehensive than, than with the adults. And, and so as the child, you know, starts to mature and they, you know, they set some goals, we help them figure out where they're going to race, what, you know, if it's AAU racing or if it's USA Track and Field, um, you know, their, their age, their distances are so age appropriate with USA Track and Field at AAU. What, what I, what I um, prevent really is, you know, that eight-year-old going and running 10 days and half marathon. That's not, you know, I won't even touch um, a runner whose parents are advocating that. It's, it's, you know, something that I don't promote. It's something that I don't, um, you know, not want to be a part of. And so with the kids that I work with, you know, it's usually trying to get them to run in junior high, getting them through running, you know, in high school and then beyond. And so, you know, when these kids, leave the program and go on to college, you know, my hope, my goal and intent is to, you know, give them a lot of knowledge base to go off to the world and continue running. It sounds like very much trying to just simply prepare them for training later. It's not so much training yeah. when they're when they're 10 years old. Right, right. And so I just had the most, the, the ultimate compliment from a dad earlier this morning, his I coach his daughter and have done so for three years. She lives in Florida. And, you know, he came to me, and when she was 10 years old, she was doing 10-mile runs. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's step back a bit. And it, and it was a struggle because once she had gotten used to that, she had built economies in her stride. So her stride think, was short. Her arm use was not strong. And she was very economical for a 10-mile runner. But she couldn't, you know, run a fast one. And so, you know, through working with her for, for three years now, um, she just won the Florida State Track Championship in the 3200 and was second in the 1600. And he just said, you were so patient. And I said, that's what it's about, being patient and building and developing. And, you know, it was her year. She's a sophomore in high school right now. And it just all came together. And, you know, people look at videos of how her form has morphed and changed and developed and you know and I'm just very proud of that I feel like I just won a marathon because I've been able to help this young lady and just one thing even if kids are, like even if the parents are not involved at all and the kids just decide like decide to start running and end up going and running 10 mile runs by the time they're 12 you still say that's that's not a it's not a good thing 
Um, it depends on what that child's goals are. If they want to go and win a state championship or if they want to be, you know, looking at a college scholarship. I, I, I don't think until a child is done fully growing that it is in their best interest to be running, you know, half marathon and training that far. All right. So. That's, yeah, just a... Uh... Just a side caveat for myself. So, um, you mentioned one, one more, and so uh, only a couple more things because I don't want to keep you too much longer. You sound like you have a very busy day. Um, tell us a bit about the the non running type of work that you used to use in your own program. The, the core work, the agility work, and all of that, the upper body strength. Yeah, and then when you you said when you were when you were competing, you would do weight weight you would lift weights and do swimming and things like that too. Yeah, you know, um, having had, you know, a degree in physiology and, and kind of looking at the human body as a whole, um, when I tried to train and, and for my own personal benefit, I thought, okay, what's a weakness? Where am I weak? What can I do outside of just going out and running, you know, 85 miles a week? What can I do to make myself better? And, and so the year I, I came to that realization was a breakthrough year. I had just gotten beat by Kathy O'Brien at the Crim 10 miler. She ran like 51.40 and I ran 52.20 for 10 miles. And I thought, Lord have mercy, what have I got to do to, you know, to beat this woman? Because, you know, I, I was going to be facing her at the Chicago Marathon in a couple weeks. And I thought, I, 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 what can I do? And so I invested in this weight machine and weight program, and I worked on my core strength, and I worked on my upper body strength. And, and when I got to Chicago, I just felt, like, so different and so, so over body, overall strong. And, and so then I incorporated it into my daily program, you know, throughout the season. And, and um, with running, it was – I could get in the pool – and I, instead of going out for another six-mile recovery run, I could go run six miles in the water and not have the impact. And so, you know, the water running, I think, helps my flexibility immensely because that's one thing that runners have problems with, is overall body flexibility. And so being weightless in the water and still going through the range of motion of running, I mean, I was able to elongate my stride, I was able to open it off, and I was able to be, you know, a lot more flexible without the pounding. And so deep water running without a belt and wearing a pair of shoes at the time was really, a, you know, a challenging workout. And then during periods of injury, I could do that as a form of cross training and stay fit. And, and so, you know, again, it was, here I am a professional athlete. All I have to do each day is run. So I wanted to fill my time with things that would actually enhance so do you think that or something else is an element that's missing from many runners training um let me rephrase if you were to look at a like a typical person's training program what what element what element or or multiple do you think might be missing from quote-unquote typical programs okay right um and i can use this as a example of the adult runners that i still coach sure um Agility, hip strength and agility. They, they get so linear. Adults go, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to run eight miles. I'm going to run this half marathon. And they're very lineal. They go straight forward. Ask them to go any lateral and they're weak. And that 
that leads to, you know, IT band problems, that leads to, you know, hamstring issues. So one of the things that adult runners or just your rank and file, you know, everyday kind of person who, who runs half marathons or who trains for the occasional marathon, they've got to, they've got to implement, a, a, you know, a certain level of agility um, training session that, you know, allow them to improve their lateral and their core strength. And you can do that. Um, you know, we do these, these fun circuit training um, sessions on the track, you know, where we're doing science dynamics, we're doing plyometrics, we're doing stairs, we're doing, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and tricep curls all while we're running. So it's just this continual circuit of overall body. And, you know, we do that twice a week during the summer. And I should do not, these kids, from, they're so strong that um, it's just a beautiful thing to see the, the overall development of, of a kid. And if you look at your typical runner, you know, their, their upper body, you know, can be, can be puny. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, that we need to be developing, you know, this huge growth of muscle, but it, it, it's the muscle that you do have to be equally as strong so that it carries its own weight. Absolutely. So, uh, two more questions. Uh, two, you know, two more things. One, I want to ask you just a quick series of five little things. Uh, first one: What was your pre-race meal? A bagel with peanut butter and jelly. And what was your favorite workout? Five times a mile. Yeah, yeah. I love. I, I hate. I love to hate that workout. I hate to love it or whatever. <laughs> I love hate it. <laughs> And what was your favorite race event to run? Oh, man. If you could pick well, one. Well, I, I, you know, I really liked the Honolulu Marathon. <laughs> you know, not, I mean, at the end of the year, you know, it's in Hawaii. It, you know, it was just fun. The pressure was seemingly off. But, you know, there's so many that were just rewarding, like Chicago and Boston. But, um, I like Honolulu. And what did you do for fun when you were competing? <laughs> or did you? Is that a trick question? <laughs> no. Um, well, when I, when I was competing, I used to play golf. Um, I used to do, you know, I used to read a lot, you know, because my life was consumed with rest and recovery and hard work. And so, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff in between. And, uh, and so, but I did play golf. And uh, I just read an immense amount of books. And I'm sure most people know the answer to this, but what race would you have loved to run when you were competing? <laughs> yeah, that is a trick question. Um, anything uh, with five rings involved. So Fair enough. I would have loved to run this. Yeah. And... Um, Last thing before we let you go for the day, um, what advice would you give to someone preparing for their first race? Um, don't rush it. You need to give yourself ample time to get prepared. You know, some of the some of the charity uh, marathon programs, you know, they, they want to take somebody from the sofa to the finish line in 12 weeks. Mm. And realistically, I don't think that's long enough. So uh, patience and persistence seems like a common theme yeah. among the dozen or so people I've interviewed so far. <laughs> wow. Very cool. Well, anyway, well, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Uh, we, we really appreciate it, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Right, you too. Thanks a lot.
This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.